Today's episode is brought to you by Fangoria Magazine. This year, Fangoria Magazine is turning 40 years old and celebrating accordingly. If you haven't checked out the latest Fangoria issues, prepare to be blown away. It's now a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition with glossy, thick pages and articles and interviews that will never be published online. The only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because the experience deserves to be a surprise. But we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. They're definitely celebrating their 40th in style. Head over to Fangoria.com and learn more and subscribe today. You can use promo code NIGHTMARE to get 15% off your subscription. So head over to Fangoria.com and use promo code NIGHTMARE for 15% off your new subscription. Hello, and welcome to the Nightmare University podcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca McKendry, and tonight we are talking about the history of the Hellraiser franchise. Hellraiser has always been my favorite franchise by far. I've discovered um, throughout my years working with horror viewers and fans um, that very much like, are you into Stones or Beatles? Most people are, um, are you into Freddy or Jason? Occasionally you'll meet people who are more Michael Myers or a few holdouts that are Chucky, but then there is a small grouping of us that are pinhead, the pinhead people. And that's where I've always fallen. So much so that um, my leg is covered in tattoos of different lament configurations. And when um, I first moved to LA and got even the slightest clout as a writer, um, my husband and I reached out to Clive Barker's company, Seraphim, and immediately asked if we could possibly meet with them to pitch some ideas. And though at the time they weren't letting people um, direct any of the films because the majority of them had already had rights taken, um, they ended up hiring us to write a couple of the comic books of the Hellraiser comic books. So it was just an absolute honor to work with them. And Hellraiser has been um, long one of my favorite, favorite franchises by far. And I'm not even too sure why. I saw Hellraiser at a ridiculously young age, like way younger than I should have. I was probably in maybe fourth or fifth grade. And as I've mentioned before on the show, my parents, um, discovering how much I loved horror films, often used them as rewards. If I passed a spelling test, I could go out and run a horror film. And it was rare that they censored what I watched. They might sit me down and explain what was going on, but they didn't really censor the gore or the violence or anything like that. And I picked up Hellraiser. I was probably still in elementary school. I'm going to say about fifth grade. And at that time, all of the sexual innuendos of it went completely over my head. I had no clue about any of that stuff. But what I saw was really kick-ass demons and crazy, crazy costumes show up and terrorize people. And I really responded to the gore and just thought that was amazing. And then by the time I got into the second one, I could not believe what I was seeing. And it was both shock and awe, but I wanted to keep watching it. And then by the time I got into the third one, I was just completely enamored by the club and wanted to go to that club as, as a kid. Um, so, and then from there I kept going. And I think that most, even the most diehard of Hellraiser fans can agree that some of the franchise gets a little spotty. Um, but there are some of my personal faves in there. And I'm also going to talk a lot about the comic books because as some of the, the later inclusions in the Hellraiser movie franchise got a bit 
you know, some of them are better than others. I, I found solace in the comic books and uh, the ones from the 90s all the way through um, the more recent releases. And that's kind of where I got my Hellraiser mythos from. So let's start by talking about where this whole thing came from. Let's talk about the Hellbound Heart. And this is the novella that was published in 1986 by Dark Harvest in their Night Visions publication. So this was um, a novella, a shorter story by Clive Barker. It was re-released by HarperCollins in 1998, uh, 1988 after the movie came out. And uh, this night, it's obviously spawned the 1987 film and the entire franchise along with it, multiple comic book spinoffs, which we'll talk about, as well as two sequels, The Scarlet Gospel, which was written by Clive Barker in 2015, and um, The Hellraiser, The Toll, which was written in 2018 by by Mark Allen Miller, who's one of Clive Barker's main assistants with the story by Clive Barker. So where was Clive Barker at the time that he wrote The Hellbound Heart? Like what was going on in his life at this point? By this time, in 1986, he had already written the Books of Blood. So that's where we see a huge chunk of the, the lore that we come to know as Clive Barker that includes Candyman, Quicksilver Highway, the Lords of Illusion, or sorry, Lord of Illusion, Midnight Meat Train, and he had also already published um, some of his major novels, including Damnation Game and Weave World. Cabal was already in the works, and at this point, he had already had two scripts go to screen. He'd had Underworld, aka Transmutations, as well as Rawhead Rex and love or hate these films, um, we're still already seeing some of his themes emerge both in these films as well as in his his many publications at this point. We're seeing themes of other worlds. We're seeing questions of morality, the idea of kind of a slippery morality of what's right and wrong and who's to judge that. We're seeing um, elements of sexuality. We're seeing transgressions of actions, kind of the idea of being transgressive, of fighting the mainstream, of having kind of a a personal um, weakness. We're seeing elements of sin and questions of what is sin and pushing yourself personally. And then we are already seeing the elements of demons. If we look at things like um, Rawhead Rex, we're already seeing this kind of demonic thing emerge to, to punish questionably wicked, but even that becomes the idea of that, you know, morality is slippery. And so with that, he creates the Hellbound Heart story. And this created an entire mythos behind it. And this is one of the reasons that I love the Hellraiser franchise so much is it's not just, you know, here's the killer. He roams around and he kills people. Um, and, and that's kind of his shtick. There is this entire mythos behind it. There is rules to the Hellraiser stories. Um, there's multiple worlds. There's creation of entire government systems within the Cenobites. I mean, the Cenobites themselves are a religious sect, but also an entire political organization that we'll get into momentarily. And ultimately, the Hellbound Heart story, when I went back and reread it, I read it completely differently than when I first did. I'd read it in college and read it very much as kind of a, a compliment to Hellraiser. It was very easy to see kind of how Hellraiser came out of it. And this time when I reread it, I really focused on kind of the differences. But ultimately, what I realized reading it now as an older adult is that it's a love story, which is really weird to say because it's a really fucked up love story. But ultimately, it's a love Love story. It opens with Julia and Rory, the married couple. And it's, he's Rory in the original story, not Larry. Um, but we see Julia and Rory. But we know from the get-go that Julia is in love with Frank, Rory's brother. But then additionally, 
Kirsty is not their daughter. Kirsty is a co-worker of Rory's who's madly in love with him. So we have this kind of tangled web of who's in love with who, where Rory's in love with Julia, Julia's in love with Frank, and then there's this outlier Kirsty who's in love with Rory. The story is also highly, highly sexual. And it's almost weird to think of it as being more sexual than the movie because the movie really does push it, but it is. Frank is 10 times more sexual in the story. Like that really is what's driving him. That is his motivation is lust and curiosity about lust. Um, even the way that he obtains the lament configuration is, is kind of hinted at that he has to do these sexual acts to get it. And what eventually causes the box to open up is a mix of body fluids, not just blood like it is in the movie. Kirsty again, is a friend who is madly in love with Rory. And so Ultimately, we still get a lot of kind of the bargaining of, you know what, I'll give you this if you give me this. And we still get the idea of pain and pleasure. But it's played out a lot more in the original Hellbound Heart. We get a lot more of the idea that for some, pleasure is pain and for others, pain is pleasure. And that for many people, they kind of bleed into one. So what we come to know is kind of one of Pinhead's most famous quotes, the idea of, you know, angels to some demons to other. Um, it really gets played out a lot more in the book. Another character that we see a lot more in the original novella that we kind of lose a little bit in the movie is the engineer. Um, the engineer speaks through Julia in the book, and we get the idea that the engineer is kind of controlling everything, that he or she has created the Cenobites, um, kind of mastermind behind all of it, and that they are the one kind of controlling this entire realm. And uh, that gets buried a little bit in the movie, which we'll talk about in this sec. At the end of the novella, The Hellbound Heart, it is implied that Kirsty is going to go into the other dimension to find Rory, who she is madly in love with. So again, we end on this note of like love and obsession. So with this, let's check out the 1987 horror markets. Like what was going on in the horror markets at this time? The majority of what we were seeing were slashers or stock and slashes, all with a final girl. They all had super heavy practical effects. That was definitely, um, this was kind of the heyday of it. This was a point that um, film theorist David Skull referred to as the Scar Wars, where movies were really trying to outdo each other with practical effects. We were seeing everything um, was super high concept. Everything had these otherworldly large scopes. And we were seeing a ton of franchises at this point, essentially. Essentially, if a film did even remotely well right now, it was going to get spun out into a franchise. And we are seeing the celebration of franchise killers, and everybody was constantly looking for the next big one. So right around this time period, we have Freddy, Jason, Michael, Chucky, Leatherface, and others. Um, some films that had come out recently that had kind of dominated the markets um, in or around 1987 would be The Fly, The Hitcher, Jaws, The Revenge, which is structured like a slasher, um, Witchboard, Lost Boys, April Fool's Day, House, and Effects. So all kind of have these giant otherworldly qualities to them, all really heavy practical effects, or they are slashers and kind of function in this um, stock and slash uh, way with a final girl. 
And so with this, in 1987, New World Pictures makes Hellraiser. It was made for a $900,000 budget, but ended up making close to $15 million domestically. Um, obviously, there were a good bit of changes from the novella for screen, and it was shot under the title The Sadomasochist from Beyond the Grave. So the one thing that Barker really did want to preserve as he proceeded into the film was the idea of pleasure and pain, the idea of mixing them. And even as they were coming up with the visuals for how they wanted the Cenobites to look, they pulled a great deal from S&M fashion at the time period, so much so that it's rumored that um, members of the crew went to S&M clubs to kind of check out what people were wearing and what was going on there and really kind of apply that into the film. Hyper gory and riddled with sexuality. Originally, Pinhead was not supposed to be the star of the movie. Um, he was billed as lead Cenobite, but the two things that when they were making the film that they figured would be kind of the sticking points, the marketing things that would end up in the central of the poster would be Skinless Frank and The Engineer. And The Engineer um, gets a little bit forgotten in the movie. When Kirsty runs into the maze, we see this kind of worm-like thing with its head on the floor kind of wiggling towards her. And we only see it for a flash. That is The Engineer in the movie. And originally, it was supposed to be a much larger part of the movie, but the effect didn't turn out the way that they wanted to. They didn't think that it moved right. It didn't look realistic. And so it got cut down a good bit. What we do still have here that is really well preserved from the novel is the idea of the angels versus demons, that this is not so much like like God hell as much as another dimension. It's not God versus Satan because neither of those two characters play into this whatsoever. We get the idea that if you are an explorer of carnal pleasure, like if you are really pushing yourself to the limit, that this box opens a gateway to this other realm where we have Cenobites. And I'm always fascinated by the fact that they're called Cenobites because that implies that they are a religious sect, that they have worshipped carnal pleasure to the point where it has all blended into one, their identities have been stripped, and they have become workers of this other realm. Ultimately, in the stories, we learn that they are called the Order of the Gash and that this is a religious sect. They did not use that term in the film, but we still do get the members of the religious sect, Pinhead, Butterball, Chatterer, and Female Cenobite. Um, and all of them have become iconic, but Pinhead, lead Cenobite, definitely became the one that um, became the most centric on the movie posters and the one who is going to continue the franchise. Um, so much so that in some of the later inclusions of the franchise, they grab other scripts that were not Hellraiser scripts and then kind of wedge Pinhead into them. In the original Hellbound Heart, he's not even called Pinhead or Lead Cenobite, he's called Hell Priest. Um, but we quickly come to know him as the nickname Pinhead. And because of the success of the first Hellraiser, we immediately roll into Hellbound Hellraiser 2 in 1988. And this was the last film to directly involve Clive Barker. This one was directed by Tony Randall, who went on to do Hellraiser 3. He also did Ticks. And one of my personal favorite inclusions in the Amityville franchise, Amityville 1992, it's about time. It's kind of a guilty pleasure. Um, Chris Young scores again. And what I love about Hellraiser 2 is that it didn't do what a lot of sequels were doing at the time period. It didn't just rehash it and add more blood, same cast, make it more brutal, same plotted 
it just explodes um, even more. The idea of more butt blood and more boobs is what you get in a sequel. It did something completely different where it leaned even more into the Hellraiser mythos. It brought in the element of Leviathan. And we have this amazing effect where we see what Leviathan looks like. It um, really kind of pushed it in a different direction and leaned into the mythos and into the other dimension. Instead of kind of becoming what it could have become, it could have become more of a slasher with Pinhead just walking around taking folks down. It leaned even more into the background of Hellraiser and found a home in that. Um, sadly, it ended up being outperformed by Hellraiser 3, but Hellraiser 2 has become a fan favorite over the years. So then, a couple of years later, we get Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. This was our 90s Hellraiser film. The 90s is infused in every frame of this one, um, mostly because it's set in this industrial club culture. The, the club being the boiler room and this character, um, this horrible, horrible individual, Jay um, T. Monroe, finds this obelisque art piece that has um, Pinhead frozen in it and a box. And one night, he accidentally kind of splashes some blood on it and the thing starts talking to him and then all of a sudden we get cinnabites and pinheads running around the club some people absolutely despise hellraiser 3 because this is when we come up with the idea that whatever your sin is in life that that will dictate what type of cinnabite you become or not even your sin kind of just your hobby we end up with cd cinnabite we end up with camera cinnabite um we end up with the girl who who can dream now and smokes permanently so it's not even as much a sin as much as it's just kind of you know i was a dj now i'm the dj cinnabite um so we end up with these completely wild Cenobites, which it lost a lot of kind of diehard Hellraiser fans at that point. But for some of us, we found it intriguing and it kind of pushed us along. I've always found Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth to be a lot of fun. Also, we start to get a little bit about Pinhead's background. We learn that he's a war veteran. We learned how he came upon the box and why he chose to open it. So continues on. And to date, we have had 10 films in the Hellraiser franchise. So one of the biggest questions um, that the fans always ask, I see it on endless message boards, is why all the sequels? Why do they just keep churning this out? And why do they seem to be rushed and low budget a lot of times? Why don't they just throw a lot of money at it and make one giant big one? Well, though I could not find any specific place where Dimension 100% confirmed this, it is of the belief that every couple of years they have to make a new Hellraiser film just to retain the rights. And so some of these films become placeholders just to keep the films um, in their in their possession. Um, and, you know, somewhere along the way, it makes sense that they realize that they did not have to throw millions of dollars at these films to get folks to see them, that they could just kind of, you know, make smaller direct-to-video ones, and people would still watch them. Now, I have a love-hate problem with this, uh, this theory because at the same time, you know, it's great that they keep Pinhead alive, that, you know, we're still getting Hellraiser things. And I am grateful for that because even some of the ones that were kind of the lower level, the ones that people don't necessarily think of as the best Hellraiser films, I'm still excited that we have them because we still have Pinhead stuff. He could have just fallen off the face of the earth. At the same time, what this functions on is the theory that horror fans will watch anything, that we don't have to put a lot of money behind it, that if it's got Pinhead in it in any capacity, somebody will watch it. 
And it sucks, but in a way it's true because I will, I will watch anything with Pinhead in it. And I think a lot of diehard Hellraiser fans function like that. Like it, even if they don't put a lot of money and time and effort into it, that it's still something that we're going to watch. But at the same time, it feels like they're kind of downplaying and disregarding a lot of horror fans. That said, I feel like a lot of the filmmakers who were doing these later inclusions really put a lot of heart behind it. So even in some of the ones that um, fans tend not to gravitate towards, I can always find something. I can always find something where I'm like, okay, it's really cool the way that you did that. Or I really like the way that this functioned, or I see what you were trying there and I really um, have admiration for it. So when a lot of these um, were becoming kind of less mythos is where it kind of got me, even though that we were seeing Pinhead, a lot of the films became less mythos heavy, um, which I was lamenting. So for that, I turned to the comic spinoffs. My favorite absolute one of the Hellraiser comic spinoffs was what was going on with Epic, which was a division of Marvel um, from 1989 to 1994. They really exploded the universe here. We had both this Hellraiser anthology series as well as the horror and both were just amazing inclusions in the Hellraiser mythos. In the anthology, I absolutely loved it because it didn't focus on Pinhead. It looked at all of these different elements of hell. You really get a lot of the politics behind the way that their version of hell works. And you really get the stories of a lot of the other um, Cenobites and how they function. And it's not always just about the Cenobites coming and claiming a soul. One of my absolutely favorite stories um, it focuses on a clown named Mr. Winky Dink who is forced to perform for the um, children in purgatory kind of the children of hell um, because they're too good to be punished but they're not good enough to go to heaven so he has to entertain them and kind of his backstory of how he ended up getting that job there's another one from the perspective of a man being tortured by a Cenobite and as he's being tortured by this female Cenobite day in and day out he eventually falls in love with her and becomes convinced that she loves him back. And the way that you open the lament configuration in these stories really explodes as well. It's not always just the puzzle box. There's one where it's um, tunnels it, during a Vietnam War and you move through the tunnels a particular way and it opens up. There's one where it's architecture. And so we see all these different ways to open up the puzzle boxes and it just really kind of makes it this giant um, universe, this giant mythos. And then we also get the Horrors. And the Horrors um, was another one co-written by Clive Barker where it's about a group of people from all different walks of life who have the ability to go into hell and pull people back out who may not necessarily deserve to be there. So essentially they're saving souls. And I loved this because I, it was kind of like an Indiana Jones-ish adventure where each time they were going into, you know, find a soul and save it. So it was this crazy um, adventure to get there. But I also loved this one because it really explored the character that I most relate to, which is Leviathan. Um, because Leviathan is so OCD and he's so organized and he's so consumed with making sure that all the souls in hell are organized. And you really get to see a lot of Leviathan in the Horror Wars comics. So I absolutely loved those. Highly recommend checking them out. You can pick them up um, super cheap on eBay now as well as Amazon. We also have the comics from Boom Studios that came 
came out from 2011 to 2015. And then the ones that I was a part of with my husband, we co-wrote two of them, um, which we did for Seraphim in 2017. So let's talk a little bit about the themes of the Hellraiser universe. If we're including the films, the comic, everything, and we're treating everything as canon, what are some of the themes that we see? Well, we see surreal worlds and gateways, the idea that um, everything is fluid, that there's always ways to cross between worlds. And with that, we also see the blurring of pleasure and pain that they can ultimately become one. We see the blurring of morality and sin. And ultimately, we end up with these questions of pushing oneself, of taking control or absolutely losing it. And which one is your pain or your pleasure? Which one is your personal hell or is your heaven? Is it taking control and making the choice to open this box only to then lose control at the end? Or is it opening this box and losing control that is your heaven. And so we end up with the idea that reality is all blurry, that there's no hard lines to any of it. Not even our own fate has hard lines to it. And I love this in the horror wars as well, because we end up with the idea that not even hell is something firm, that you can go in and rescue souls, that there's a way for redemption. Even if you have been damned, there's a way for redemption. And we see this even in the movies. I mean, Frank is able to climb his way back out of hell. And throughout many of the movies, we see this idea of people skirting hell, of people trying to escape what could be deemed as their own fate of the way the path that they have chosen but at the same time they have found ways to skirt it because everything is fluid and everything is surreal and has these very permeable lines so let's talk a little bit about our lead Cenobite, Pinhead, who would eventually become kind of our star of the franchise and still is to this day. We can't even think about what a Hellraiser film or TV adaptation would look like without Pinhead being the central focus. He is what we have come to identify as Hellraiser. The character was supposedly pulled from a 1973 play called Hunters in the Snow, which was directed by Clive Barker and starred Doug Bradley, who played a torturer. And supposedly, Clive Barker seeing Doug Bradley play this kind of unrepentant torturer was what gave him the original idea for the pinhead character. Skin Frank was again meant to be the focus of the film, but after everything was said and done and the movie was completed, they figured that pinhead was much better to plop as the central image because he was by far the most distinct and kind of had the most horrific punch for it. And we get the idea really quickly in the series and in the comics that Pinhead was human and that he maintains a little bit of his memory, that he still has a little bit there. By part three, we're seeing flashbacks to what he was. And we see this even more in the comic book, that he was once military, that he had this intense curiosity for pushing himself to the limits. And this is where it became. Ultimately, Pinhead becomes a horror icon. And even though that we have not had a major theatrical Hellraiser film in a decade or so now, um, decades, we still view him as a horror icon. And if you're saying like, you know, make a list of horror icons, he still ends up there with Michael Myers and Freddie and Jason and other people that we, you know, consider to be these kind of historical franchise icons. Ultimately, Pinhead ended up becoming recognizable and very beloved. And I kind of view him much in the same way I view Freddy Krueger, where it's this idea that Freddy Krueger was a child molester and a child murderer, but then 
then we kind of came to love him as a society to the point where, you know, it was okay to dress up as him for Halloween. And even though that Pinhead is a demon and he's a torturer and there's all of this S&M stuff that goes along with it, all of this sexual connotation, um, Pinhead ultimately becomes a beloved character to the point where I was just at Midsummer Scream last weekend and there were children walking around dressed as Pinhead. And so a lot of kind of the background of him gets lost, just like there were children walking around dressed as Freddy Krueger. We kind of lose the mythos instead supplementing this kind of celebration of it, that we love these films, we grew up with them, and now this kind of celebration of the franchise as whole, not so much the the texture that made up the character. So with that, he's our lead Cenobite and by far the most well-known of the franchise. Let's talk a little bit about the other Cenobites. So as I said, their design was largely inspired by S&M fashion and trends. We have our canon Cenobites, who we um, know as like Butterball, Chatterer, and the female Cenobite, who was not even given a name, which is uh, Barbie. I'm sorry for that to this day. Uh, you definitely deserved a name. Um, but we have those ones that were in the first few films that we consider canon. And those are the ones that have become most distinct. Throughout the films, we see other Cenobites come into play, and we also see some amazing ones come in through the comic books. Um, there was uh, two sisters who were performers. Um, one was an artist and one was a singer, and I absolutely loved their story because they they lost the ability to sing and to speak and to see in their, their hell. Um, we end up with the Wire Twins, who I absolutely love. So we end up with a lot different Cenobites within the comics and as it moves through the different films. But we know these ones who have been kind of staples of the franchise, Butterball, Chatterer, and female Cenobites. Ultimately, it is the Cenobites' job to do um, three things. They first have to determine whether or not you deserve to be punished. And that comes into play a little bit in some of the movies, more so in some of the comics, that some people open the box accidentally and ultimately do not deserve to be punished. They um, use this a little bit in the movie where there's a, a mentally disabled person who opens the box and they deem that, you know, they cannot be punished because they, they did not do anything to deserve this fate. Um, this gets played out a little bit more in the comics, and then we also see it within Mr. Winky Dink's Kids. So first, they have to determine whether or not you deserve to be punished. Then they have to drag you back to hell and determine what your punishment will be. And then it is ultimately their job to turn you into whatever you will eventually become. And a lot of times, these people also become the bargaining chip. You can bargain with Cenobites. You know what? Don't take me to hell, but I promise I will find you 30 more souls here. And so it's this idea of kind of bargaining, of wish fulfillment. Um, and this gets played out as well in the comics a lot more where we see people really rise to power, like the idea that politicians may have a Cenobite in their back pocket that they are indebted to, but the Cenobite is giving them power. And so we see this kind of demon control where the demon can give you power, but you eventually have to feed them souls and eventually you're going to lose your power and they're going to take you anyway. And so they have to do bargaining. But it's important to realize here that Cenobites, if we look at them politically within the mythos, they are the kind of the floor workers. They are lowest on the political totem pole here because they are the ones who are actually going out and reaping the souls. They are collecting the souls. And then we end up with people like Pinhead, who's like middle management, reporting to the engineer and reporting to Leviathan. So politics of hell and constantly people are trying to overthrow Leviathan and overthrow Pinhead. And so we, we see this kind of dynamic 
systemic struggle within the corporation of this, of Hellraiser. And I also find it fascinating that ultimately you can be taken or you can become a Cenobite, but then ultimately you're recruiting more people to hell, like you're trying to convince more people to come into hell. And so it kind of becomes like a pyramid scheme, like hell functions very much like a pyramid scheme where it's all about recruiting more people. And the more people you recruit, the higher you will move up in the political ranks of hell. So let's talk a little bit about the lament configuration. Supposedly, this was inspired by Barker's grandfather, who had a Chinese puzzle box. The original lament configuration was created by a man named Simon Sace, and it was an actual wooden box. He made it three by three by three because of the religious connotation behind that number. It's very sacred to a number of different cultures, and it was a wooden box which he um, stained mahogany and then metal overlaid. And the metal had been actually acid etched. It was very detailed. He wanted all of this different symbolism within it um, so that you could actually see pictures within the box. And so it was this very intricate prop, which people then threw on set and dropped and put in their pocket. And so they had to have multiples of them because they would get so messed up. And Simon supposedly spent much of the shoot just running around trying to make sure that the box were still in good condition because it would take him days to remake them. By part three, Gary Tunicliffe comes in and starts doing the effects on the box. And that's where we really start seeing the box moving, um, where it will turn into all of these different positions. And then you'd, he'd have to create multiple boxes for each film, depending on what it needed to do. Um, because the box did have to move, there was never one box that could do all the different movements. They would create different boxes. This one turns this way and the button presses in here. And so they would have a whole variety of different boxes, which they would shoot and then edit together to make it look like it was one box moving. Ultimately, they refer to what the puzzle opens as a schism. It opens a schism in dimensions. And this is used a lot in the, the novel and in the subsequent sequels. Um, it opens a dimension and allows the inhabitants to cross over or you to cross into their world. Um, the March Hands box, originally these were created by a, a, a toy maker, supposedly named Lamar Chan. And he first created the original box. Obviously, it's this big kind of Pandora's box mythos. In the original Hellbound Heart, it discusses the box as being a little bit more musical than we see in most of the films. Certainly, in most of the films, the box has kind of um, a motif that goes along with it, like a score that will replay whenever the box is being opened. But in the original story, it talks about how Lamar Chan was a toy maker and he'd also made singing birds. And so when you opened it, it tripped this musical mechanism and it would play a short rondo of sublime banality. Um, and there was music too. a simple tune emerged from the box played on a mechanism that she could not see enchanted. She delved further. So the original concept of it was that it was a music box and this gets used in a couple of the films, but not to quite the extent of having it be like a full fledged music box. So with this, let's talk about what the box actually does. It opens up this other realm, this hell. So what is this hell? It's an interpretation of hell, and it's definitely not what we've come to know in the Christian mythology exactly, because there is no God. I mean, we may have a couple of mentions of God with, you know, lines like Jesus wept and things like that, but it is not what we understand as hell because Satan does not play into this. The whole idea of angels does not play into this. So what we get here is that hell is permeable. Hell can be escaped. 
Hell can be reasoned with. You can reason with all of these Cenobites and they may ultimately just decide, no, fuck no, you're still being tortured, but you can reason with them. Hell has bosses. It has middle management. It has followers. It has people who are curious to get into the corporation that may ultimately find pleasure, pain, or both there. And you can recruit souls to get a better position in hell. So again, hell's a pyramid scheme. Leviathan is in charge or maybe not. Who knows? But the biggest thing of hell, what will put you in hell is curiosity. And then they look back on your life. You know, what type of sins have you had? What are your hobbies? If you were a highly sexualized person like Frank, you know, that's going to be your punishment. But ultimately, it's this concept that it can be both. And that gets lost in a lot of the movies that this is not necessarily all bad for people that for some, this is heaven. And we see this a little bit more in the comic books, where for some people, this is exactly where they want to be. This is their redemption. This is where they want to spend their afterlife. And then for others, this is sheer torture, and then it truly is hell. So we we kind of come to know the Cenobites as demons who live in hell. And originally it was called sadomasochists from hell. But it's important to remember that it's not always hell, that everything is permeable, everything is fluid. So where is the future of this franchise going? Well, there was a TV series being pitched around for years. Years I was hearing about the TV remake. And then in 2019, we had the announcement of the David S. Goyer film from Spyglass Media. And I am hoping to the high heavens or hell that this film happens. Because over the past couple of years, we've had a lot of announcements of Hellraiser remakes. Basically, every couple of years, the idea of doing a big budget, major theatrical Hellraiser remake has come up. In 2006, we had a remake announced with Pascal Linguere, who is uh, the director of the Martyrs film totally makes sense, but it didn't happen. 2007 or another Hellraiser remake was announced with Julian Mari and um, Alexandre Bastillo, who had done Inside, didn't happen. 2010, a remake was announced with um, Todd Farmer and Patrick Lucier, which I would have loved to seen, but again, it waxed and waned away. And then in 2013 through 2017, Clive Barker was announcing that he was writing it with the Weinsteins and that Doug Bradley was returning. So now in 2019, we have had this new announcement that David S. Goyer is proceeding with a Hellraiser remake and or reboot. And I hope it happens. And so with this, we're going to chat a little bit with Ashley Lawrence, who played Kirsty in uh, the first two Hellraiser films. And we're going to talk a little bit about what it was like shooting what it was like working with clive and kind of where the franchise has gone since then you were kirsty cotton the iconic kirsty in hellraiser and hellraiser 2 how did you get that role like was there an audition process that went into it well what i know is that they had gone to new york and they had gone to chicago and they had also held casting in los angeles but they hadn't found the actress they wanted to play kirsty so they um, they were ready to go home the next day, and there was a woman who, well, she was a girl at that point, who was an, um, an intern at what was New World at the time, said, I think I have your girl. And so they called me in, and I met Clive. He gave me sides and said, your uncle is in your father's skin, and he wants to kill you and have sex with you, probably in that order. Go. 
Wow. Yeah. That is some crazy direction to get. So what did you do to prepare for that or just kind of what came naturally? What came naturally? The circumstances uh, are so extreme in that film that I knew if I didn't believe it wholeheartedly that the audience wouldn't believe it. And Clive's world makes sense to me. It always has. From the moment I met him, he's probably one of the great loves of my life. Wow. So you get the role. Talk a little bit about what type of preparation Clive gives you going into that. Like, did he have you read the original story? Did he give you any material to look at or anything like that? Clive's script was so visual. It was so emotional. It was so brilliantly written. When you looked into the puzzle box there were undulating bodies oh when you wow. when you open the box that's what you would see he described the music he described uh, kind of an orgiastic imagery each character spoke with their own cadence each had their own agenda there was never a moment that i questioned why i was there or what was happening it all made a lot of sense to me mhm that's amazing. And so working with the Cenobites in the script, were there descriptors of what they look like? Or was it a shock when you rolled into set and saw everybody looking all crazy? No, I feel like um, the way that they articulated and manifested these characters was very on point with the script. And the the attention to detail, like I saw all of the Cenobites in makeup. I saw, I saw the creation during the day, but I, I remember seeing a woman hunched over uh, what was Doug Bradley Penhead's suit, and she was hand-tooling the leather. She was piecing together every aspect of his costume. There were so many details and so much love put into how each of them looked. It was stunning. And so what type of director was Clive? Did he tell you a lot of notes or did he just kind of let you do your thing? Like any specific memories of what Clive was like on set? Oh, Clive's a genius, first of all. <laughs> and he speaks in every aspect of artistry. He's he's visual. He's, he's a writer. He's... Oh, he's fearless. And he was in the trenches with us. I remember there's a, there's a scene where I am backing away from Uncle Frank in a room trying to stay silent because he's looking for me. Mm -hmm. And I back up into a corpse and a bunch of maggots fall out of the mouth onto me. Yep. That wasn't in the script. So that was a bonus when I came on set and he came up to me with a big box of maggots and a maggot wrangler because apparently maggots need wrangling. And he said, watch. And he put his hand in the box of maggots. He said, they will not hurt you because you're alive, which is sort of a dubious comfort. So, <laughs> um, and they, they make a weird sound like shh because they were covered in sawdust so they didn't stick together. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, and we shot that, I don't know, five or six times. And that was the day the investors were there to see where their money went. So they're standing there grinning in their three-piece suits and, and the maggots are sticking to me like in my shirt, on my jeans. I got over a, a great deal of fear in in this um there was no room for any sort of phobia for anything but he was as visceral he was as emotional he he was literally there with all of us every step of the way mm -hmm. and because he wrote it 
and created these characters, he had such a deep understanding of why each of us were there. And I, I believe that I was cast because I had an inherent understanding. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to occasionally be punctuating with some questions um, from our Fangoria fans on Twitter. And this is a good one to use right here from Jerks Production. He writes, um, where were you mentally when you went to set on such an extreme horror film, like a lot of us, um, this was kind of one of the most extreme scenes we had seen at the time. Like, were you aware before the shoot kind of how extreme the gore was going to get with the hooks and everything? Strangely, I, I wasn't daunted by that. That didn't seem abnormal. Nothing in the script seemed impossible. Mm -hmm. And so I simply put myself in the circumstances and reacted accordingly talk a little bit about the engineer or at least just that moment with him because in the book he's a much larger being speaking through julia and in this he's the creature but we only get a glimpse of him really quick um what was it like working with that creature on set well we had a lot of budgetary constraints and so if you look at the scene in the hallway where i'm running mm -hmm. i had about a three foot range to run. So I'm basically running in place and hair acting. So I'm turning really quickly over I my love shoulder. hair acting. It's a thing. I it's swear. A thing. It's a thing. And so I'd run and run and flip my hair and turn back and run and run and run in place and flip my hair and turn back. And if you look closely, you can see the dolly and the guys pushing it. And, and I think they were aware that Doug and the other Cenobites were such a powerful image. Mm -hmm. They went with that. Yeah, no doubt. I, I'd read somewhere that Skinless Frank was originally going to be the central conceit and then the engineer. And then after seeing Doug Bradley as Pinhead, they were like, nope, that's our that's, poster that's right our there. That's our poster, yeah. Um, so talk a little bit. You make the film. While you were shooting and right afterwards, did you have any concept of kind of the, the large impact that it would have, that it would be such an immediate success? Did you even... Did this dawn on everybody while you were filming it? It didn't dawn on me. What I what I did feel was there was sort of a perfect storm because Clive is is so brilliant and he's confident in himself enough to allow everyone their own strength. So he he sort of oversaw everything, but he allowed us each our own expression. And I think that's part of his brilliance. Mm -hmm. The, the DP, Robin Vigen, was brilliant. Chris Young, who did the music, brilliant. Yep. Claire, Andy, like these are the, Doug, they, they're just extraordinary creative people. And we were all in it 100%. Absolutely. It was so intimate and so sweaty. And Clive and I would paint on the walls of the, of the house in between scenes. Mm -hmm. It was very powerful. It wasn't necessarily a happy set because the subject matter is so intense, but it was definitely infused with a lot of energy and passion. Excellent. So film comes out. It's a total success, completely um, blows up financially. You get a green light for part two and you get to come back. Talk a little bit about how part two, um, at least the shooting, was different than part one. Well, Clive wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So just based on that, the, the whole uh, approach was very different. And I know that Tony Randall wanted a very distinct visual that was very different from Hellraiser. So there were new characters introduced. There's a new director. The, the feel and the look of it is far colder. 
uh, more stark. Mm-hmm. The budget was bigger. We shot at Pinewood instead of on location in the house. So all of those things were very different. I got to work with Imogen. Mm-hmm. She's lovely. Yeah. So that's in itself amazing. So by that time, had you started to realize, you know, that this is a big thing. This is like a cultural phenomenon. Still, no, not at all. Not at all. And we actually have um, Rod Gornto asking um, on Facebook, did you uh, know how iconic Hellraiser would become when you were filming? And if not, when when did you kind of realize how big it would be? I'm still kind of shocked, but grateful about it. I I think I would go to places looking really tired, like late at night, 7-Eleven, and I'd get recognized. Every time I looked really drawn, haggard, and stressed out, mm-hmm. people would be like, dude, you're the chick from Hellraiser. So there was there was that. But but otherwise, I didn't really think in those terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and this question, I'm going to plug it in now just before we move on from that kind of first film, um, because it's a constant question. I also got it when I did this as a live show at Midsummer Scream last um, week. What is up with the homeless man in the original Hellraiser eating the bugs. He doesn't really play much into the story. He's not in the original story. What's up with the homeless man? Do you have any clue? I don't. I think he was just a cool looking guy with really beautiful eyes that was willing to eat crickets because he actually ate them. He actually. So those are real crickets he's eating on set. Those are real crickets he's eating on set. Yep. And so it was just kind of a cool bookend for the story. Not necessarily anything um, that's kind of pertinent within that. Um, So why do you think that Hellraiser has had such lasting quality? Like what was it with fans that really resonated? I think that there's an honesty to the film, that there's an intimacy mm-hmm. in, in the way it was shot. I think there's a sincerity that's palpable because we were so committed to what we were doing. I think there's always this questioning of why we're here and if there's more and the the horrible, violent irony of people getting exactly what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. I, I think that resonates with being a human being. Wow. And you wrote the foreword for the Hellbound Heart 20th anniversary edition that came out a couple of years ago. I did. And so talk a little bit about um, what you kind of channeled going into that. Like if you're going to write the foreword to this iconic book that has really kind of changed the face of horror, like what what did you feel it necessary to talk about and what memories did you bring back? Well, I felt like I, I wrote it almost like a diary mm-hmm. because I, I put all of my thoughts on little yellow post-it notes. And I, I just wanted to tell people the the emotional and visual experiences I had. I had never been to England before. I had never seen hanging pigs and chickens with their feathers still on. And we, we hide all that in the States. I had I had never been on a movie set. I had never experienced the kind of intensity and and I was spoiled by Clive because I've never met anyone like him ever and and I wanted to express how grateful I am to have been involved in something that still resonates with people and that was so formative to me creatively and just in my own life I wasn't making out with boys you know I was fighting demons from hell and there's there's a very interesting trajectory that happens because of that uh growing up experience that's beautiful that's absolutely beautiful so now looking back on the film what is your favorite scene like what was your favorite moment in the entire first film 
I I have many, but I particularly resonate to the scene where I don't know that Uncle Frank is wearing my father's skin mm-hmm. because we shot that in one take. Uh, the the petting of my hair by Julia is so viciously maternal and ill-placed. It's the only time she connects with me at all. And it's basically like readying a lamb for the slaughter. Mm-hmm. And I'm too upset to recognize that his eye color is different. He's acting strangely. But I, I think we were so connected in that moment. It, it was... It was wonderful. Yeah, it's such an amazing scene. It's by far the best in the movie. That's a you really... Agree? I love that. It's it's what I think of as the most iconic scene, even though that it's not the climax and it's not the one with the most effects. It's kind of what I think um, the mythos is boiled down. Why, is, do you, why do you see that? It's, because it's cool it's, that you think that It's too. the whole idea of deception. Um, that everything is about deceit and permeability, the idea of slipping in and out of one person's skin, literally the <laughs> idea of bartering with um, yes. the Cenobites, which is what I've always loved about the Hellraiser mythos is that hell can be bartered with. Like if you provide souls to it, you know, you can get different rewards in return or you can escape hell if you get a certain amount of souls. Okay. And so that for me is kind of Hellraiser synthesized in that scene, mm-hmm. the idea of deception, mm-hmm. of permeability, and of bartering to find your way out of your eternal, you know, punishment. Yes. yes. Since Hellraiser going forward, you have had an, an absolutely amazing and rich acting career. What is it from this experience in working with Clive that you've carried with you, that you've taken with you the entire way? Love, passion, and courage. That's great. And is that what Clive infused on set? That's who Clive is. Wow. And that's so uh, incredible to think about looking at kind of the subject matter and everything. Well, I think Um, that's the irony of it is dark or negative or bad in quotes. There's a duality in everything. mm -hmm. And with Clive, good is always victorious. People like me... uh, will will win and he writes characters that I resonate to and all you need to do is tell the truth that's gorgeous oh my gosh well thank you so much for joining us today Ashley and um, please check out Nightmare University on the socials and we are now announcing that we will be back for a second season we just keep the education going thank you so much for joining us Ashley Nightmare University is a Fangoria Podcast Network original produced and hosted by Rebecca McKendry, producer Natasha Pacetta, executive producers Dallas Saunier and Phil Nobile Jr., associate producer Jessica Safa-Vemer, art and design by Ashley Detmering, sound recording design and mixing by David McKendry, music by The Serpentines, for Fangoria, Brandon Moynerdy, Jason Koslerich, and Rachel Wilson.